Like History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. We're nearing a change in seasons, quite literally, but America's pastime still has a few things to close out. The Little League World Series is finishing up its annual tournament. The minor league season only has a month left, and we're going to take some time to discuss the first thing I ever fell in love with, baseball. First, we're going to take a look back at a play that, for my money, is the best catch ever made in center field. Yes, ever. That grab came on July 1st, 2006. Gary Matthews Jr. stole a homer from Mike Lamb in Arlington, Texas, and it is a sight to behold. We chatted with both Lamb and the man they called JR about how that snag came to be. Secondly, straight from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, I sat down with Xavier Scruggs, a Southern California native. He played nine years of professional baseball, which included three stints in the bigs and two seasons playing in Korea. Now he's a broadcaster and works with his former club, the St. Louis Cardinals, as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant on the baseball operations side. We talked about his baseball journey. And of course, for Talk to Me this week, we have to say some words about America's most controversial game show, Jeopardy. What a month they've had. Come on, y'all. Joining me now, a tremendous baseball family, for those of you who don't know, the Matthews brothers. Of course, Gary Matthews Jr., some call him Little Sarge, some call him Jr. And Dell Matthews, who works in MLB's front office of the commissioner. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Good, gentlemen. Always, uh, always great to hop on and talk the game. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, thankful to be a part of your platform. Appreciate you having us, man. No doubt. Dell, what's going on? Yeah, doing good, Yates. Good to see you, man. Awesome to be on here with Junior. And, uh, you know, got a little weather here in New York, but uh, that's all right. We're 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 talking baseball, so can't be in a better place. And just appreciate you and, and all the stuff you're doing. Well, I appreciate your time. And let's go right back to 2006. Runner goes, and Lamb hits it in the air to center field. Looking for the single. Instead, he's got Robert. Wow, what a catch by Gary Matthews Jr. To take away a homer. Oh, forget the cycle. You might have seen the catch of the year right there. You may not see a better catch than that all year. That day, you made one of the catches that, and I'm not just saying this because you're looking at me. I'm saying this because I believe it, to me, was the best catch I've seen in center field, and that includes a lot of names, and we'll get to that part later, just so you know how I feel about it. But I want to do this. Tell me about how that season started for you in terms of where you were at that point of your major league baseball career and what was going on. Yeah. So this would have been 2006 and in 2004 was really kind of a crossroads in my career. I had signed with Atlanta. I think I'd gotten traded to Atlanta or I'd even signed with Atlanta in 2004. And I was signed to be Andrew Jones backup. And I went into spring training feeling good, had a good spring. And while I was watching, I was putting a group with Chipper Jones and Andrew Jones. But, you know, Chipper Jones is one of the the best switch hitters, uh, arguably, that we've ever seen. I consider Eddie Murray and, and, you know, you've got some of the the greats who have been, you know, let's say Mickey Mantle was another switch hitter who was Mm. some of the best. But having an opportunity to play with Chipper, he was around my size, right? A a taller third baseman, had some size, uh, shorter arms, but similar in size. And so I'd always watched his game and and being a fellow switch hitter, 
I was paying attention to his toe hole in the cage. And, you know, really long story short, that spring was finally when I realized that my dad had always been saying, Junior, like, I think you're too far away from the plate. And I was like, no, dad, I've got long arms. I think I'm fine. Well, when I looked at Chipper Jones' toe hole in the batting cage and where my toe hole was, it was probably six inches off. Mm. And that's a lot when we're talking about plate coverage, right? being able to reach that outer half and still drive the ball. And so as the spring went on, you know, I watched Chipper Jones more and more, especially left-handed. He had an open stance. He did a toe tap. And so I started kind of laying in bed at night during spring training, toying with the idea of maybe opening up my stance a little bit and, and coming closed. And so I decided to, to try it. And so that spring I made some adjustments in my stance and, and any adjustment in your stance or swing during spring training is going to come with some difficult moments ahead and and sure enough I, I hit a hit a cold patch in spring training so much of a cold cold patch that uh, my father called and he says junior what what's going on with your swing man and I said dad look I've made some adjustments I've been watching chipper setup you know he's much closer to the plate he does the toe tap he comes close and he ends up having way more plate coverage. And it actually gave the pitcher the deception that Chipper wasn't as close to the plate as he was. And so I was trying to explain some of these things to my dad, told him, listen, my swing feels good. I'm making an adjustment. And like most black fathers, he was like, all right, well, you know, you, you keep playing. They're not paying you $1.5 million to be hitting 180 during spring training. I was like, dad, I, I get it, but I'm, I'm going to be fine. Trust me. So a week later, I got that tap on the shoulder one morning when I walked to the clubhouse. Uh, one of the clubhouse attendant, attendants came up and said, hey, Junior, Bobby Cox and John Shoreholtz want to have a talk with you. And if you're a player, you know uh, they're not calling you in for a meeting to have a cup of coffee. Right. So I, uh, ultimately, I ended up getting released. But – having hit in the same hitting group with Chipper and had a, having a chance to watch him up close was one of the big catalysts, aside from getting the playing time in Texas, that led to what 2006 became. And so whenever I tell the story about 2006, you know, I have to tell the story about how I landed there in Texas. And had I not played so bad during that spring in 2004, I would have arguably been stuck behind Andrew Jones for the next three, three years. Andrew didn't take many, uh, many days off at all. Played a lot of games in center field. Didn't like to take days off. You're playing in the American league. There's no DH. So my playing time over those next three years heading into free agency could have been really ugly, but instead I got a chance to play with Chipper, watched his game, uh, got released and then went over to Texas and finally got the playing time that really I needed to develop. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. So that is kind of how we ended up uh, having an opportunity to really see the fruits of my labor in 2006 and uh, the culmination of that, uh, if you will, in, in the catch. Yeah. Texas though, different ballpark, different place. And we're talking back when that thing was wide open and hot as hell every yeah. day going day. Tell me a little bit yeah, about that man. experience as an outfielder. 
So one of the things that people never really think about as a position player and a center fielder is the amount of backing up I have to do at every position. I got to back up left. I got to back up right. You got to back up ground ball at the second base and shortstop. It's just a lot of running. And, and so essentially imagine, you know, doing interval cardio in 110, 107 degree heat every summer, every day. And so it, takes a lot out of you. So no doubt it's a hitter's park. The old park was a hitter's park. Ball carries well. If you get it up and, and you drive it, you, you got a chance to do well. But the downside is you just can't keep the weight on during the summer. I mean, mm. it's extremely fatiguing. And I think that's something that a lot of fans and, and baseball analysts tend to kind of not really think about you know, when it comes right. to player performance and is it a hitter's park? Is it not? Now, look, if you're, if you're a pitcher, no doubt, not one of the places you want to pitch or go to as a free agent. That's different now. They've got the new stadium, beautiful stadium with the retractable roof. So that's not going to be an issue. But, you know, the, the old stadium in Arlington, tough place to play. Great place to hit, but, but tough place to sustain yourself over the course of the year. You got to stay healthy. You got to stay hydrated. You got to get your work in. It's a, it's a fun place to hit, but a tough place to, to play. We're talking with Gary Matthews Jr. here on Black History Always, Clinton Yates, the undefeated. Now, now that we've got the scene set for you running around all sweaty, Skin looking dark as a mug, by the way. Every time I watch that highlight, yeah. I'm like, yo, man's was black, Glitting. black. Glitching, you know I mean? right? I mean, it yeah, was, it's, it's, that's, that's the reality. So that game, I mean, not everybody, obviously, look, for all the baseball y'all have been through in your families and in your lives, you're not necessarily going to remember the TikTok of every single day. And I use TikTok in a journalism context, not a social media context. But what do you remember from that day, from that series, going into that particular ball game? What I remember is Mike Lamb just going off <laughs> in the series, right? That's a, that's a big series. If you're a Rangers fan or an Astros fan, that's a, that's a big rivalry in the area. And so, you know, what I remember is, uh, you know, packed house every single game for that series that we played against them. This, I can't remember if it was a Saturday or Sunday. It might have been a Sunday day game. But Mike Lamb came into the series just absolutely on fire and, you know, anyone who remembers him remembers his bat, uh, what we call a professional hitter, right? Just uh, a great approach, you know, got a little bit of power, but, you know, definitely a professional approach to hitting. And so we happened to catch him at a time where he was hitting really, really well. I think he had already had two home runs in the series. Mike, Mike says, I mean, I talked to him, Mike said that, that was one of the first years that he felt like he really, really belonged in the bigs. You know, from being mm -hmm. up and down and fighting for his position all the times in spring training, he said he, it was about as, you know, locked in as he's sort of ever yeah. been in his life. It was 06. So yeah. 05, you know, I played more. We go to the World Series. You know, I'm still a bench player, but, like, you know, I'm having a blast, man. You're you know, in the big leagues uh, at that point for sure, sure. I'm in the big leagues, you know. <laughs> and, and what's funny is I was telling my kid the other day um, that I, I happened to be in AAA in 09. Um, you know, typical baseball story, uh, get taken off the roster, or, you know, last week is free training and, you know, no one's, no other team is holding a spot for Mike Lamb. Right. So I end up in AAA with the Mets and, um, 
the third base coach for the Pawtucket Red Sox calls me over. Like I'm taking ground balls in between innings. It's like the fourth inning or something. Mm-hmm. And he goes, let me ask you a question. I he says, how long before you felt like you belonged? And I was like, I, I, I pondered it for a few ground balls, like in between innings. And I walked back over and I said, I think about five years. Wow. You know, wow. so like 2004, 2005 was like the first time that I looked in the mirror and felt like I was a big leaguer. And I believe he was yeah. going for the cycle in that game as well. Now, just to run through the highlight to the actual play, you were playing him deep, but the first move you made was directly on the horse. You weren't even looking at the ball. You just ran oh, straight no. back I mean, to, 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 to locate it later. I mean, he... he... He had been swinging the bat really, really well. And, you know, sometimes when you're out in the outfield, you've got all the sounds in the stadium. Sometimes the wind's blowing a little bit, uh, crowd noise. You know, this ball he hit, hit a hanging changeup. And I actually heard it off the bat. Sometimes you can't always hear it off the bat. You know, you're just going off of what you see. But, but I heard it, so I knew he hit it hard. I remember just in that at bat, I had, the count was three and one. And I hit, I hit the ball and I remember leaving the batter's box thinking that stinks because I figured I was just out because, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to hit a home run to center field in Arlington. Like, you know, the easiest home run is to right field, just the way the wind blew out um, to right consistently day in and day out. Um, So I knew hitting a home run to center field, I was never a power hitter. So hitting a home run to center field, like as soon as I hit it, I was like, oh, that's a bummer. I just flew out to center, you know, when I needed a single for the cycle. You can kind of see when pitchers make mistakes with the location. So as soon as it comes out of their hand, you know, a quarter of the way there, you're like, "Uh uh-oh. You know, so I could see it out over the plate. He crushes his ball to center. And yeah, I, I got on my horse running straight back. I could tell it was, probably going to go out of the park, but because I was playing a little bit deeper and because he hit the ball so high, I thought I was going to have a chance to, to time it. And then as I'm rounding first base, I look up and, you know, Gary's like at the wall, climbing the wall, catching it. And I was like, wait, what just happened? Like the, I had no idea the ball was going to go that far. And then the glimpse that I got, it looked like he wasn't looking at the ball. Like he was looking you know, over the fence and just threw his glove up and the ball went into his glove. And I was like, that can't be. Uh, when I got back there, the ball got back there faster than I anticipated. And it ended up being kind of well over the wall more than I anticipated. But I picked the spot on the wall well. And so if you YouTube the catch, you go back and take a look at it, you can see me take a, a couple peeks before I get back to the track to pick my spot on the wall, but also take another peek up at the ball before I, before I jump up. Let's break that down for young outfielders who might be listening. What's the technique there? You pick your spot when you're on your line so that you have an idea of where to locate and how to triangulate. So you don't knock yourself out. Please do explain that from an outfielder standpoint. Yeah. So when you know a ball is hit over your head, you know, you got to quote unquote, get on your horse and run and go get it. Boom, you take off. As soon as the ball's hit, you know, you, you're not running back looking over your shoulder, right? You turn and you're running to the spot. So I give it maybe four to five hard steps before I take a peek back to check on the ball and see where it's at. You know, is, is the sun up there? Has, has the wind taken it in a different, uh, different position? 
No. Okay. And I keep running, right? I peek after four or five steps. I get back. I'm looking at the wall. I know the wall's approaching. Maybe I can feel the, the warning track under my feet. That tells me I got one and a half, two steps before I got to get up. And before you hit the track, you would like to take one more peek to see where that ball is, right? You know, has the ball changed? Is it where I thought it was going to be? If it's not, I might need to make adjustments. But uh, this time, the ball ended up being exactly where I thought it was going to be. It ended up being a little bit further over the fence than I anticipated. But that is, that's the way that you want to do it. This is a marvelous play. Finds the wall, times the leap, plants the foot, gets extended. My goodness. Spider-Man. And Vigio still the only cyclist for the Houston Astros. Ended up climbing up the wall instead of jumping because I realized after that last peak before the warning track that the ball was going to be over the fence, higher than I anticipated, a little bit further over than I anticipated. And, you know, it's one of those times where I climb up the wall, kind of leap up and just reach over. It seems like I'm, I'm reaching as far as I can reach and as high as I can be to time it at, at the perfect time. And I come up with it. You know, when you look at the video, it, it seems pretty simple, but there's so much more go- that goes into it. Right? It seems pretty simple. You no, did a 180 off the wall, my guy. It did not seem pretty simple. I presume <laughs> that was the natural way that your body was taking you, but that was still a relatively athletic move, and that's tricky because you don't turning posi- you know turning your body in the air while you're making a catch. A, you can hurt yourself, and B, you can drop the ball. You know what I'm saying? So you know that yeah. part of yeah. the play. Take me through that a little bit. Obviously, it was a natural reaction. At least it was obvious to me. But it was definitely a high degree of difficulty. Listen, uh, Dell can probably you know relate to this because we've practiced this catch so many times as, as kids, right? Like when Dell and I, we go out and we we play catch. We might take it over to the big stadium once the team got off the field, right? Once our dad was out of eyes view, then we knew we could go do our thing on the field. These are things that we used to practice as kids, right? We played pickle. We, we practiced making these great catches up against the wall. And so really in my, in my own head, Dell and I had done this dozens and dozens of times before, right? And so you have a fair idea of, you know, how it's going to go in your head. Mm. It doesn't always work out that way, but this is one of those times where, you know, yes, it just, everything lines up perfectly. The sun's not in your eyes. You pick the right spot on the wall and you come down and you have this, you know, outrageous moment that, that people still remember. It's probably been 12 years now. And once a week, someone comes up and, and mentions that catch, you know. Dell, tell me yes. more about that. Yeah, tell me more about that experience. Not just not just from the day of. We'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, that time that you guys used to spend as brothers on the field, as kids, when your dad was playing. Talk to me a little bit about that in terms of how you all taught each other the game as well. Yeah, I think when, you know, spring training, whenever spring training rolled around or um, we were at the park playing catch, you know, we would go through our routine and we would practice our fundamentals and that sort of thing. But as kids, you're always emulating uh, what you see on TV. And my dad used to have these highlight videos of, of his career, actually, at the time, and highlight videos of, of players and his his friends. And we would we'd throw the VHS tape in and, you know, there'd be some 80s rock and roll kind of going to the, to the highlights. But we'd be watching these videos and literally 
um, we would emulate what we saw. And, and so they would be highlights that we would watch. And there, there's a highlight actually of my dad uh, in San Francisco. He made a catch over the wall. Um, not as athletic as Gary, but he made a pretty impressive catch. He, he made another catch in Atlanta where he robbed a home run, uh, went over the fence to get it. His hat goes over the fence and he made a catch in Philly. I don't know, Gary, if you remember, you probably mm. remember this, but I think it was either in Sports Illustrated they do like a uh, like a four yeah. part photo montage of this catch yeah, in Philly that. that my dad made, and he had it framed uh, in his office. And so, like when you have these things around, and you're watching highlight videos, and you've got you know you, you see pictures of what your dad has done, like it just becomes innate. Mm. And so, what Gary was able to do when he made that catch in Texas, it was in the footsteps of my father, uh, but with his own style. And, and that's really what I love because it, it reminded me of the home runs that we saw my dad rob, but Gary did it with, with his style, with his build, uh, with his game and, and clearly took it to another level and uh, goes down as being one of the greatest catches of, of all time, a signature moment, I think for his career and a lot of players that have played this game don't get a signature moment, but clearly for junior uh, signature moment uh, in his career in 2006. You know, he actually did an amazing job of tracking that ball, you know, of climbing the wall at the exact moment that he needed to. Um, and he was actually watching the ball. So that was cool. That made it easier to take because um, it would have been really hard to take if he wasn't even looking at the ball. Um, but the one thing that was crazy is like he he didn't field it as a backhand. He like fielded it as a forehand, which is like was yeah. probably what made it even more difficult. Um you know, and uh, I, I love the reaction of Biggio in the dugout. Like, he's got his hands on his head. Like, he can't believe what just happened. Um, you know, but um, I think I'm pretty sure we went on to win the game. So, like, that was, you know, that was fine. Too. <laughs> you know? Nice. But, but, like, with my career, I mean, I played eight years. And, you know, um, very blessed to have played that long. Very lucky to have played that long. Um but that is literally like the, the only highlight that I have, you know? Um, so I, I coach in a, a youth travel ball organization um, yeah. just for fun. And, you know, when I get introduced to new kids, you know, this is my clam. He played eight years in the big leagues and they kind of just like, you know, cock their head and look at me funny. Like I've never heard of you. And it's like, well, no, you haven't. And a lot of people really haven't. Um, but then they go home and they Google my clam. And like the first thing that comes up is, is the catch. Um, and so they come to practice the next time and they're like, Oh, I Googled you. You got robbed of a home run by Gary Matthews jr. And I'm like, Hey, thanks for reminding me. Um, Del Matthews, Gary Matthews, jr. Clinton Yates, black history, always podcast, the undefeated. Now back to the day though. I mean, what were you doing, Dell? And were you watching this game? Were you there? How did you find out? Like, how did that go for you once you saw him do something that you just described as tremendous, but in line with who you, who you all are? Yeah, so 2006. So for me, I had, um, you know, I, I stopped playing in 2001, went back to school. Um, and so I'd done an internship with the Cubs in 2004. I was trying to break into baseball and really start my career. So to be honest, uh, I was like, going to school, finishing school. Uh, and I was waiting tables, uh, in the evenings at night, probably at, uh, Roos Chris steakhouse, 
uh, where I uh, where I was serving tables and, and just trying to break into the industry, but still keeping keeping some cash in my pocket. Right. And um, I remember um, being in the restaurant and seeing the highlight. And then I start getting a bunch of different texts about this catch. Um, but I remember watching it on ESPN. And sure enough, like directly after the game, Junior hit me or he might have texted me. He goes, hey, I think I'm I think I got a special one, man. Wait till you see this catch. And uh, I had already seen it. But, yeah, I remember seeing the highlights and just watching it over and over again. And, uh, you know, just the way that he went back and the turn and the athleticism. And uh, it, it was it was great. But, you know, Gary and I are really close. So I got a chance to see a lot of his games um, in person. And he had made some great catches earlier in his career with the Cubs and even in the minor leagues. I mean, he, he would call me and tell me about some of the catches uh, that he made. He really took a lot of pride in his defense and how he went about that part of his game. And so when he told me this one was special, um, I knew we were in for a ride, no doubt. At the time, speaking of, you said you called him. You said, hey, I think I got a special one. But what was the reaction like on the field? I mean, what are your other, what are your teammates doing at that point? Like, how does that, you know what I'm saying? There's always the dap you get, and then there's what happens when you're in the dugout, and then after the game, you know what I mean? What was the reaction like after you came down with that ball? You know, when I got back, I mean, the crowd's going crazy, right? So you've got a packed house, 37, 40,000 going crazy. And, and you know it's a, you know it's a good one. I think I – I maybe he had him at bat maybe the next inning or, or a couple innings later. And I walked to home plate, got a standing ovation at home plate, umpire and a catcher, you know, they stand up. I'm, I'm digging in, getting ready for my bat, trying to get focused. And I can't remember. It might've been Ed Rapolano says to me, he's like, junior, that, that might be the best catch I've ever seen. And, you know, you're, you're trying to stay in the moment and stay focused. And, you know, look, you got to – you're about to stare down a guy throwing, throwing fastballs at 97 miles an hour. And so that – you try and move past these moments, right? You have a great play, and you're like, okay, I've made a great play. I've made a huge contribution. I got to stay focused. We got, you know, seven innings left. We got six innings left, whatever it may be. In my head, I thought, wow, that was – man, that was, a, that was a special one. But, you know, so trying to stay composed, but – when all of your teammates, when the umpires and catchers from opposing teams are, you know, they're whispering to you while you're on the field, right? You're standing on first base and the first base whispers to you, wow, that, that might be the best catch I've ever seen. And, you know, you start to think, well, man, it, it might be. And, and it didn't, didn't really occur to me until I saw the replay later on ESPN. My son had me watching ESPN the rest of my uh, rest of my night um <laughs> unbelievable uh, he was probably up till like 12 a.m watching sports center so when I saw the replay on sports center I thought wow you know like that that's a that's a big one last uh, thing I'll ask you both and this is this is for both of you is what'd your dad say what'd Sarge say you know I mean he's obviously <laughs> the guy that you know y'all modeled yourselves after in one form or another not just as baseball players but as men yeah what was his reaction yeah you know for both of us our father has always been the the standard of, of excellence as a baseball player uh, you know so many kids grow up they they want to be LeBron James they they want to be uh you know Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, right? Francisco Lindor. Yeah. For Dell and I, like our hero was our dad. So imagine growing up and, and your hero is not only larger than life and this amazing, amazing 
major league baseball player, but he, he happens to be your dad and lives right down the hall. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So, you know, for me, he was just always the standard. And so when your father tells you, Junior, that's probably the best catch I've ever seen. I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a better one. He's like, that was amazing. And so my father said, all right, take me through it. What, what are you thinking? Did you know you had a chance at it? And I told him, I was like, you know, I got such a great jump on it and it was hit so high, dad. Like I, I thought I had a chance. at it. I thought I had a good chance. I thought I'd be able to time it really well. And I'm also playing at home. So I know every spot of center field. I could probably get back and jump up on the wall without looking. Right. But I'm, you know, just so accustomed to playing in that place. But you know, when your father, when your, your hero tells you that's maybe the best I've ever seen, then you start to believe it, right? You start to believe that, man, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe it is. Tell, and, tell me a little bit about, you know, Sarge's impact on you. Never mind just that catch, but just, just to wrap it up. For yeah. Us. yeah. I think, you know, my dad is always, uh, you know, as Gary said, you know, had a, had a standard and a, a level of expectation, I think, above the, uh, above the norm uh, for both Gary and I. And so, you know, my dad, uh, you know, you never see him really get too excited unless he's on a baseball field. Uh, but you could tell he was uh, excited and, and, and proud of that moment, um, for sure, no doubt. And uh, when you have conversations for him, it's like, hey, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, now add add three more hits, you know, in the game, basically. You know what I'm saying? Like that's that's kind of like my dad. And so, um, you know, I think it was special. Uh, we were both very proud. You know, I think Junior doesn't get enough credit to be running full speed Yates yeah. and to be able to make a catch with your back to the plate. Not many people get a chance to, to make that kind of catch and actually pull it off. And we've seen some great ones from Mays and, and from Edmonds laying out. But to go up over the fence and, and literally uh, with your back to the wall, most of the times it's on an angle when guys are robbing home runs, but to have your back completely to the plate and, and to make that catch and come down with it, uh, one-handed catch all the way, um, just doesn't really get much better than that. And, and my, dad, uh, my dad talks about it to this day, and, uh, you know, we, we love it. We love seeing the highlights when it comes around every – every year. And, and when they're talking about the greatest catches of all times, uh, juniors right there in the, uh, you know, top three, top five, number one for me, but uh, arguably uh, top three, top five in, in the game all time. Oh, it's number one for me too. Black history. Always the podcast. Black History Always, Clinton Yates here. We're talking with Xavier Scruggs, former professional baseball player and current broadcaster, front office guy. What do you do? You do a lot of things these days, man. What's going on? What's going on, man? Appreciate you having me. Um, yeah, I do do a lot of things, and I think that's that's who I am. I got to do be doing a lot of different things. Right. Um, and ESPN Broadcasting, doing MLB Network Radio, um, uh, do work diversity inclusion uh, and equity diversity equity inclusion for the Cardinals, consulting for them, 
Um, and then just being a father, man, just doing that thing. That, that's cool. You know, that's that's a lot of work. That's too. that's 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 the big job right there. <laughs> yeah. So, so t- take me back to the beginning. You know, you you were a high school player. You were one of the guys that was drafted out of high school, opted to go to college. Talk to me a little bit about what that journey was like in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. For me, grew up playing three sports um, in high school: basketball, baseball, and football. Realized football players are getting too strong for me. Basketball <laughs> players are getting too tall. And I was like, you know, I'll stick with this baseball thing. Right. And uh, UNLV came calling. Um, an opportunity for me to go to college. And, uh, you know, for me, my parents was always kind of ingraining in me the importance of a college education. And I understood that from an early age, even when I was a freshman in high school, because my parents took me to their college. They both went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Okay. Um, so I got to visit that college a lot and, and visit other colleges while doing summer camps and stuff with baseball. And that was always something for me that was exciting. It was like, oh, I want that college experience. So even after getting drafted, it was, no, nah, you know what, I want to go spend three years getting better, but then also – using this as an opportunity to grow and have that college experience. So went on and did that at UNLV. Luckily got drafted three years later by the Cardinals in the 19th round. And then, um, you know, it was a grind through the minor leagues. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't like a top prospect or anything like that. Let's back up and, and, and start there though. I mean, UNLV college baseball, very famously extremely white. You know what I mean? It's not easy as a brother to get on a team, never mind play on a team, never mind succeed. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, for me, I think it was it was more about trying to block that out, trying to, you know, allow myself to say, okay, maybe, you know, there's no maybe there's no issue for me, you know, as long as I go and and do what I know how to do, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so that was something that, you know, as a as a baseball player, as a, as a normal human being, you look around and you don't see many of you, that can be tough. Yep. So for me, it was, okay, let's make friends do, with what I have, but then let's make sure I focus extremely hard on what I need to do and understanding that my chances may not be the same as everybody else's. Mm. And I got to go double, triple as hard. Um, so while somebody else is studying, and I did this a lot, uh, early in the morning, guys going to class uh, I had a class a little bit later I would straight to the cage early work early work um, and I'd have a coach down there they'd be like hey what are you doing up here so early man I was like I knew I had to get the work in I knew I had to do some excuse me by myself too because in order for you to be a good self-evaluator you got to be able to see what yourself is doing work with yourself sometimes so yeah. it's great to like get the work in with the coaches but then I had to get some work in by myself so understanding that the in order to get where I wanted to be I couldn't let that stuff you know get it get in front of my way I couldn't let that be an excuse I had to go grind um and and that's what I was able to do man and and I was able to get in the minor league system where's the first place you played in the minors first thing I played that 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 road is a big it's going to be a big part of this discussion because so I mean listen for those listening who don't understand you don't just get drafted and go to the bigs. You know what I mean? And every every minor league situation isn't like the movie Bull Durham. You know, like it's not all fun and games and hijinks. Where was the first place you went to play, you know, after you after you came out of college? Batavia, New York is where I went to play. Western New York. And, and I, it was a eye-opening experience for me because UNLV, D1, good college facilities, mm. good travel, all good hotels, all that. <laughs> You go to you go to New York Penn League. You take a step back from that, <laughs> and um, I remember the field and everything was like, man, this is this is pro ball. <laughs> like I no, I didn't sign up for this. This is what I signed up for. 
So for me to see that was an eye-opening experience, but then it also reminded me that I still had a long way to go, mm. right? So you get to spring training, you see the fields, you see some of those facilities, like, man, I'm, I'm in the bottom of the bottom. I got to get up there. And so for me, I had to keep working and um, was able to get myself to the next level, uh, high A, double A, triple A, was able to – and for me too, it was – I talked about that long road. It took me seven years before I got to the big bro. That's a long time. I mean, and just, I I say that because at that age, those seven years are such a large percentage of your life. You know what I mean? Like at some point you wonder, is it going to happen? What was that like just in terms of your mental and sticking with baseball? Yeah. And I think that's one area where I was able to at least be able to grind a little bit harder because I always believed in myself that, okay, you have the capability of being there. But now it's about don't worry about who's in front of you. Don't worry about who's behind you and just go. And I would look and I would see, for me, Albert Pujols was mm. at the top. He was first, first baseman. baseman. Yeah, you like know? yourself. So I couldn't even I couldn't even look at, okay, if, if I'm nowhere near where I need to be with Albert Pujols, like I got to just focus on myself because you get a lot of guys in minor leagues that are like, who's in front of me right now? Who's behind me? Who's trying to catch right. me? I'm competing against so-and-so. Like, I couldn't think about that. I just thought about every single day, how do I get myself better? And just put myself in a position where a coach can say, okay, X is ready for the next level. Okay, X is ready for the next level. That's all I tried to work on. And like you said, there's so many times I question, man, do I keep going? Right. Because I'm looking at boys from college and and homies from back home going and getting jobs. They're starting to make money already. They're having families. And I was like, man, is this thing for me? Because – you know, even after seven years of grinding, you may not have a long my major league no, career. Right. And that you, wasn't you the might case. get a cup that, of coffee. Right. That wasn't the case for me, too. So I knew it was going to be a grind, but then also a grind to stay there. And um, tried to use the opportunities that I had with the Cardinals. Also went on to the Marlins. Um and then played in Korea and Mexico. Man. We'll get to Korea in a little bit. But one of the stories I love hearing from ball players all the time is the story of when you got called up to the bigs for the first time. Oh, what were you doing? How did that go? What was that like? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I am, I'm always – because, you know, even if you don't have a long career in the bigs, when you're grinding through the bus leagues, when you're, all, you know, eating peanut butter sandwiches, you know what I'm saying? Like, you dream of the moment that you finally get sort of recognized. Where were you? Where were you playing? Who was your coach? What happened? Tell yeah, me all. Yeah, well, before I take you, let me take you back a little bit earlier in that season. I was in AAA 2014, Memphis Redbirds. Um, had my had my manager by the name of Pop Warner. He's the third base coach of, of uh, the Cardinals now. Mm-hmm. I was in... Uh, the cage because I had had a rough start to the season. Uh, my first year in AAA, I was struggling. I was probably one for like 30, so wow. just struggling. Okay. You know, we're yeah. talking under under 100. Man. And I'm hitting in the cage. I'm trying to figure something out. And I, I manager comes down. This is way before the game starts. Manager comes down to the cage like, X, man, what's, what's good? Like, ah, just working, man, just trying to get it. A little frustrated trying to figure it out. He's like, hey. Don't worry about it, man. When I was in AAA my first year, I think I hit like 220, 230. And I looked at I looked at him, and I was like, okay. And he walked off, and I was like, I thought about it for a second. I'm like, I'm not trying to hit 220, <laughs> 230. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be you. Right. Because he never got to the big leagues. Mm. And so my goals were different. And I that's that was the moment it clicked for me. I was like, I cannot, that is unacceptable for me. That huh. is, that's not where I need to be. So something clicked at that point. And seriously, from that day on, I took off in AAA. And then 
that that call up the uh, playoff game. I had struggled 0 for 4, 3 Ks. I know. Um, it, but it was September time, so you still think, okay, maybe there's an opportunity. And I yeah. had balled the rest of that season. For those that don't know, in September in the major leagues, they have call-ups. It, rosters expand so that they can use, after the minor league system ends, they can use players to get experience, not necessarily maybe make a playoff roster, but you get a taste of the base to see what it's like because the season is shorter on the other side. Right, and we're talking about a Cardinals team that was already ball. They didn't need any extra players. Right. They were balling. So I'm doing my thing, hoping I get a chance Never, never smelled the major leagues. And after that game, manager, hey, manager wants to see you in his office. And I'm like, man, I'm about to get chewed out again. <laughs> swinging at balls in the dirt over three, over four with three Ks. He tells me I'm going to the big leagues. Uh, him and the farm director were there at the same time. And I was just like, man, I was, there was chills throughout my whole body because yeah. you start to think about every single moment that led up to that point. And you don't think so much about yourself. You think about all the people that helped you get there. From my father to my mother to my grandparents um, to mentors yeah. uh, to, to preachers. Every, <laughs> like, seriously, yeah, every, no, every I, single I hear you. person that you've ever talked to that's helped you get to that point, you start thinking about all those moments. And that's what gave me the chills is because it, this thing is bigger than baseball. It's about life. And... Called called my uh, called my parents called my dad he was he was actually sleep at the time <laughs> yeah wake up he, pop yeah, he, was yeah. Wo- he was woke I'll tell you that right now he was woke <laughs> and he was he was jumping up for joy my mom she's crying on the phone wow um, girlfriend at the time who's now my wife Jessica she was crying too trying to figure out oh, where's the first flight like yeah so and we were going to Milwaukee and man just an amazing feeling because you you all the work that you put in. And then I remember the next day actually going to Milwaukee, being tired as hell. I was so tired. Yeah, because you didn't spend all that en- that energy, yeah. that nervous energy. And, you, yeah. and I didn't go to sleep. Just right. The first thing, I didn't want to miss my flight at 5 <laughs> in the morning. So I'm like, man, I got. I kept looking at the clock in the middle of the night. You know when you can't go I to get sleep. it, man. That's, you know, you better make sure you are not messing that up. So I was making sure. And then uh, I finally get to the, I get to the field. Um Mike Matheny, hey, X, we're so happy to have you here. I'm like, man, I appreciate you. I'm happy to be here. You're in the lineup. I was like, yo, I'm in the lineup. You're in the lineup? That's relatively rare for those who don't understand that listening. Like, getting a call up is one thing. Getting in the lineup is another because from a prep standpoint, you don't necessarily know what you're dealing with. You got to go straight to your video work at that point, I presume, to figure out who you're starting against. Exactly. And and the one thing for me is I always hit lefties really well. So I was like, okay. Maybe the first lefty I'll be in there. It was a righty, and I was and I was in there. So I was like, "Let's get it." I mean, there's nothing else but let's get it. I, I remember walking up the steps in Milwaukee and looking at a stadium for looking. That was the first time I actually was in the middle of a stadium mm. like that for the first time. So I'm looking around in awe, and I'm like, "There's a lot of seats here." <laughs> Yo, they got a lot of people like, in this thing. Right? This ain't like the minor leagues, right? So, man, that that just hit me so hard, and and. I loved, I soaked every moment in. Yeah. I, like, that was one thing for me is, like, make sure you enjoy the moment. I soaked it in. Black history always. Clinton Yates, Xavier Scruggs, talking baseball. A lot of brothers in the big say that there's always typically one guy on their team or maybe even in their division or whoever who sort of takes you under their wing and just kind of lets you know, like, listen, here's how you get some things done. Here's how this works. Was there a person like that in your career in general? For me in general – there wasn't. Okay. Honestly. Um, and that was one thing I always I was, I was kind of disappointed about. I had some guys in, in my corner 
uh, one was Jason Hayward. Yeah. But, of course, he was younger than me at the time. So a lot of times you'll have a guy that's older than you that has been through the system for a long period of time that right. will show you the ropes. Jason Hayward was one of the guys I could kick it with. Um, he had been through it since, you know, we know his story. Like the yeah. young Jay Hay was a prospect prospect. Yes, Everybody yes. knew who he was right. he starting was from like the beginning. The Bryce Harper before Bryce Harper Correct. at that time. So he was that guy for me. But I didn't have someone that I could look. At. I remember my boy Thomas Neal with the Giants. He had a you know he had a Willie Mays that he could go and talk yeah. to. Like he would go have dinner with those guys, and and everybody would kind of be together. I didn't have that. Man. And when you think about, it, especially as a black player coming up, and I kept looking around at some of my boys in the in the league that had that, and I'm like, you know what, it, it it's it's okay because I'm gonna talk to them. You know, right. I'm gonna continue to find out. Okay, what's what are they learning, and then lean on some of the guys that I can in my own locker room, like a Yadier Molina, sure. a Adam Wainwright. Uh, um, uh, uh, Holiday was really good for me. Matt Yadi Holiday. Molina, by the way, legendary ball player, still playing. You know what I mean? Like uh, that's that's and that's that's a perspective, especially in an organization like the Cardinals, where. They ain't messing around. You know what I mean? Like, the Cardinal way is a thing, you know, very much a thing. So, that's good to hear. Yeah, no, and so those guys were able to really help me out because I didn't – when I first got to locker, I I didn't know who was going to be those guys. And for me, it was, you know, a lot of – Hey, X, hey, make sure you're going about it this way. Hey, make sure your shirt's tucked in here. Make sure you let these guys go in the cage before. So that way you kind of learn a little bit of the do's and don'ts. And my locker was right next to Yachty's. So, Mm. I mean, if there's one locker you want to be right next to, it's Yachty. And to see him come in early, 11, 12 o'clock, for a 7 o'clock game. Set up and all that, yeah. Stuff like that, man. That that allowed me to say, okay – this is what I need to be doing. And it gave me an idea of what the top of the top is doing. Wow. So, Mar- Cardinals, Marlins, Korea. <laughs> I mean, my man. You know what I'm saying? Like, a, <clears throat> a decent amount of us have gone to Korea and had some success. But, listen, you're coming from San Diego where you grew up, UNLV, all the places along the road. I don't know that you ever thought you'd find yourself in the Far East, for lack of a better term. <laughs> There was no way, man. There was no way because I was so focused on being a good major league player that I didn't even see Korea was a possibility. I had heard guys going to Japan right. and, and making some decent money and playing over there, but I had never even heard of Korea. So when my agent first called me and he's like, hey, X, uh, Korea, NC, Dinos are looking at you. They're, they're looking to sign you. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, um, you know, let's let's think about that. He's like, X, we don't really have much time to think about you. They want to give you 48 hours. Wow. And I was like, 48 hours to make a decision? Going across the globe? I, I can't even pray about something for 48 hours. <laughs> right. Like, for real. Like, I was like, man, no. I, I immediately kind of shut it down. I was like, I, I can't do that. And so I told him at the time, no. And then I was also, like I said, so focused on the major leagues. I'm like, I'm a major league player. I'm not a KBO right. player. I'm a major league player. And that's not a knock on... That league. It's no. just that when you get a certain mindset in your head about who you want to be, exactly. it's kind of hard to get away from that. Exactly. And, and yeah, maybe it's a little ego thing, but at the same time, it's like, man, I, I've worked so hard for this, right? I, I'm not even thinking about this other thing. So when I had turned it down, I, I got a little interested. And I started looking up, like, who played over there, looking at Instagram and stuff and, and their pictures. And I'm like, 
Wait, South Korea kind of looks dope. <laughs> kind of litty. <laughs> kind of looks dope. And and I talked to Eric Thames, who had went over there and played on the same team. Yeah, he, he would. Ju- he was just that offseason coming back to uh, to Major League Baseball to the Brewers. Signed a three year deal. Yeah. I think twelve million something. It like was that. a big deal for him to come back. I mean that that revitalized his career. Exactly. So I was thinking at the same time. Man, maybe this is the move. Maybe this is something smart. So maybe let's start thinking about it a little bit more. Started talking to my fiance, who was at the time, who's now my wife, and was like, "Hey, like I'm thinking about Korea. Like let's consider it at least." And so I hit, I hit the team back. I hit my agent back, like, "Hey, I'm thinking about it. Like is the offer still there?" And this was a few weeks later. So you took a risk, basically, in turning down. Yeah. Yes, and it was a million dollar risk. Million dollar guaranteed X. I, I turned it down. And I come come back to my agent a few weeks later. Hey, uh, you think that opportunity is still there? Have they already signed something? He's like, X, they signed somebody. But I'm going to talk to them and just see what see what can happen. And maybe there's another team. So he calls the NC Dinos back. Dinos say, we signed somebody, but we're willing to give that person to another team that's that was huh. looking at, at that dude at the same time. That's a good look. Yeah. <clears throat> it was a catcher at the time. I'm, I'm trying to remember his name. I can't remember his name. But he had... Uh, oh, Johnny Monell. He okay. had played in the Mets system. He went – so Dinos gave uh, um, another team, with KT Wiz, Monell, and they opened up the spot for me. And then that's wow. when I was like – I was like, Jess, the spot's open. Let's, let's do it. And, wow. I, and she was like, I'm not doing it. So, the, so I had already committed to Dinos, and then my wife yeah. is like, no, I'm not doing it. She's like, you can go do – she had her own job. She's like, you can go do right. it. Right, I'm not traveling I'm across not the globe for you to hit baseballs. It. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, it's a fun ride to you, but that's a different world for somebody who's watching you play. Yeah, for real. And she had and she had really established her own career, too. So that was a, a big point of it. And I told her, I said, I said, you know, just like anything else, if I want to do something 100%, I can't do it without you. And I think that's when she understood that this was going to be a building block for us as a as a family. As a unit. As a, exactly. And I think once making that commitment – we went all in. We, we said, hey, if we do this thing, we're emerging ourselves in the culture. Because the one thing I heard, Clinton, was like, you don't you don't go over there and, and start and bring in your American ways over there. No. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's disrespectful on a lot of yes. levels. Yeah. And those are the same guys that end up not performing well because they're going against the grain all the time. Why are you guys doing it this way? Why, why aren't you doing it this way? Trying to impose their ways. And I said, Jess, we can't do that. As a unit, we can't do that. You got to dive in with the wives. I'm going right. to dive in with the boys. We're going to make this thing a unit type thing, like you said. And, and it worked. It really worked. What was career like? I mean, just on a day-to-day. You know what I'm saying? Big brother walking around. You know what I mean? I know that you're sort of in a different world as a member of a baseball team, but you still have to live there. You know, you're yes. still very much a part of the culture. On the day-to-day, what was it like? What would you eat? What did things look like? You know, what did, did you learn the language on some level as best you could? I still remember the first day I got there looking at all these tall buildings, and I was like, man, where, where am I right now? <laughs> I was just like I was dropped in the middle of the map and didn't know where I was. Uh, but at the same time, like, man, I loved it. I loved it just walking around because I was able to walk from my building straight to the field. Um, 
in the culture there, man. Just so they love you. Like you talk about walking around as a brother, you're sticking out like a sore thumb. Yeah. <laughs> everybody knows who you are. I hadn't played a game and everybody's still running up to me for autographs. Wow. I'm like, I'm like I better ball out. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I better hit this thing. We're gonna have problems otherwise. Exactly. So it was cool to have that embrace and that love first and foremost. And that told me about the respect of the culture. That was one of the big things that I really recognize is like the respect that everybody has there. Um, especially if you're somebody younger for somebody older. That, that's a big thing over there, and I recognized that early. Um, but then also the way that they love the game. Not, yeah. I'm not just talking about the players. I'm talking about the fans. Like, they embrace it so much. They come to the stadium. They're not on the phones. They're <laughs> jumping up and down, right. screaming, doing dances. Um, everybody has a song. So that was amazing for me to see on the baseball side, but then trying to figure out what to eat, right? That yeah. I'm a big food, I'm a big food guy. That's a major factor. It's yeah. huge because I can't read. Right. You're looking at characters that you've never seen, but maybe if it's Spanish, okay, because sure. it's the same alphabet. Right. But you're talking about different characters, so I don't know what this does this say pork or does this say FedEx? I don't know <laughs> what, I don't know what this is. I get it. So I'm trying to figure out and, and luckily I had a translator who was there for me 24/7. Um and we ended up being best of friends, man. His name is Kong Marusol. Okay. And he... Uh, shouts to Kong. <laughs> Big shouts. I mean, that's... Dog. No, you got to have somebody. For real. That's you know? my, that was my boy. And the, the second year I was there, another dude by the name of Daniel Minky Cho. Um, and he ended up... Cho, this is kind of going off a little bit. I had I had my son was born in Korea wow. the second year. Um, so he actually helped quote-unquote, like, deli the deliver my yeah. son. Wow. Because he had to translate everything when it came to doctor's visits, Ooh. when it came to the actual the actual delivery stuff, Dog. making sure everything went smooth. Yeah. So, Ooh. luckily, we had, a, we had a, um, uh, a, a doctor that spoke English, but you think about all the nurses. That Everybody in between is yes. just as vital. Exactly. So, a lot of that was extremely important, making sure my wife was taken care of, man. So, there was so much more stuff that was bigger than right. baseball there. I tell everybody it was everything outside of baseball because once I hit that field, your boys are your boys. It's different. Yeah, once you hit the field, you're playing baseball. Exactly. You know what I mean? But that world outside of it, wow. So, Korea, you know, runs its course, if you will. You come back. You're in the broadcasting game now in a certain way, and I guess you're probably learning some things, too. You know, we've talked a couple of different occasions, yes. you know. There's not a lot of us in the game. There's certainly not a lot of us talking about the game. What have you learned in terms of the translation between being a ball player and a broadcaster at this point of your life? Yeah, man, I, I've learned that, man, this is a, it's a totally different world. And you look at it from a, from a baseball player's perspective, and you're like, oh, man, they're just talking about the game, man. That's, that's easy stuff. And now that I've entered it, I, I didn't realize how much prep needs to go into it, right? And also being able to explain the game in a different sense that not everybody is going to understand, yeah. you know, because I played the game at the highest level. So sometimes I have to be able to say, I may just expect somebody to understand something, but no, you got to bring it back. Un, un, unfold it, X. And I think that's what's been cool about the opportunity is I've got it in the like take myself back and say, okay, oh, how yeah. would I teach somebody, you know, or how would I talk about this thing? But then also differentiate, differentiating yourself. And I think that's one thing you do to the max. And Thank that's you, why man. I, that's why I had to have the conversation with you early on yeah. when I first got in, I was like, man, what's, what do I need to be doing? And I think that's one, one area where I said, okay, what's, what, what can I do that bring to the table? That's a little bit different. And I think for me is being able to show all aspects of, 
not not having that first round, not not being a first round, right. not being a top prospect, not spending ten to fifteen years in the big leagues, but a different perspective, right? Playing overseas, mm-hmm. playing Dominican, Mexico, Colombia. I didn't realize all those things bring a new light to this game that I can bring on the mic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it for shows, me, you know? and, and so for me, that's been important for me to be able to bring, um, and especially you mentioned being an African American in this thing too. That's that's where I think I can differentiate myself too, is because we have different perspectives on things, and I think when people hear those things, they love it. They love to hear a lot of those things. So I'm I'm enjoying being able to bring that to life. Last thing I'll ask you is about your role with the Cardinals. Um, you know, baseball ostensibly, and by baseball I'm referring to Major League Baseball, ostensibly has been trying to do a lot of different things between sort of the RBI, which is a league I played in when I was in high school, cool. between you know, breakthrough series, dream series, all that stuff. But you're working specifically with the team you played for. What exactly is your role and what are you trying to do with the Cardinals? Yeah, well, let me take you back a little bit to last year, 2020. Man, so I had suffered an Achilles um, tear and I knew the transition was coming. And I started seeing in 2020 issues with social injustice, coronavirus stuff, so much political stuff. And I was like, I wonder if these guys are being educated on what's going on around them Mm. during the moment. And I'm also in the Players Alliance group texting, and I'm hearing what these guys are talking about. And I'm like, these guys aren't getting the education. They're obviously disappointed about some things, but do they have anybody to bring it to in the organization? Right. Because, yes, the Players Alliance group, amazing – but sometimes those things need to be brought to life so to other people's attention that they're talking about in the group. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I need to go find out first and foremost how I educate myself. I said I wanted to be educated on, um, you know, diversity. I wanted to be educated. It's a lot. On, yeah. uh, all, yes, but for me, and my dad was in human resources for 40 years. He okay. said, X, you need to go take courses with Cornell. He's like, you're going to be able to get the best education learning about all those, all those things that you want to learn about, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, and, and current event issues, and they do such a great job because he had he had known that stuff. He had recruited people who had went to school at Cornell and done that. So right. I educated myself, took the online courses, huh. and then I said, I need to be able to, I I I need to be the one to be able to give this to the players. Yeah. Like what I just learned, can I give this to the players? And uh, I went directly to Mosaic, um, the GM of the Cardinals, John Mosaic, and I said, Is this something that, that you're providing for the players? And he said, this is something that we kind of provide to the organization, you know, some of the people that are outside of the players. Sure. And I said, what about a player-to-player relationship that, that somebody is helping these guys understand current event issues, understanding how to dive into their communities, understanding the background of their environments when they go to these different minor league facilities. Right. Which, is, these- which is major because, again, as we talked about on your path – that can be the end of your career if you yes. if you if you get wayward. Yes. You know what I mean. And you're you're in some town that's not just a random place where all this stuff sort of matters in the same way that you see on the news. Right. That could affect your actual life. Right, right. And then you see guys like like Jack Flaherty last year using yeah. his platform a lot. And and my goal was okay. You don't have to be an advocate, but understand if you are an advocate. There's going to be positive reactions and there's going to be negative reactions. So I want to bring that to light to all the players. Right. Not only that, un- help them understand 
everybody has a chance to succeed. That's and not what, just black folks, if I may. You know yes. what I'm saying? The players as in everybody in the clubhouse. Yes. It has to be a full conversation with everybody. That's what diversity and inclusion is about, is everybody's a voice in the conversation. Right. So I wanted, I wanted Mosaic to understand what I wanted to bring those players. And like you said, not just the black players, not just minority players, everybody. So for me now – being a diversity and inclusion consultant, I've been able to help these guys. And, and social media is one, one thing that I feel like I take pride in. And I've understood how people um, really consume content. So for me, they have a Teamworks app. There's a way that I can be able to provide content in there via written stuff, via quotes, via huh. audiograms, um, via actual podcasts, wow. video, all those things I've been able to take. So for an example, I sat down with Willie McGee. Talked about some of his experiences coming the up. Legend, yes. Willie McGee, yes. five one. Yes, so we talked about some of those experiences, how what it was like being a black player coming up, and some of those same things that we're still dealing with today. Yeah. So maybe it may not be best if they hear it from somebody within the organization that that's maybe a, a social media manager communicate. But if they hear something from Willie McKee, <laughs> they're going to listen. They're going to listen. And that's what I started to realize. So I did a lot of those. I, I did some stuff with Mike Schilt, mm-hmm. um, you know, did some stuff with Ozzie Smith, did some stuff with Jack Flaherty. So now guys start to understand Okay, this isn't just like voices, random voices. These are people within the organization, also outside of the organization. They're talking about using my platform, using, being able to build a brand as well, being able to dive into the community, but most importantly, finding a way to be successful where I am. Yeah. Find, actually feeling like I have a voice. And that's one thing I want everybody, players, coaches, staff, to feel like they have a voice and they have an ability to succeed and be themselves. Save your scrugs, man. You're an impressive dude, bro. Come a long <laughs> way. You know what I'm saying? I really appreciate it. Black history always. Like History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. When Alex Trebek passed in November of 2020, the television community as a whole mourned. The lovable Canadian had been very public about his battle with pancreatic cancer. It led him to step down, and thus speculation about his replacement clearly became a huge talker, not just in the industry, but in America. In a story from Vulture titled, Inside the Jeopardy Host Hunting Meltdown, Sony looked aside as an unknown EP crowned himself Alex Trebek's replacement. How did this happen? Joseph Adalian wrote about the matter. There is no pleasure being derived from watching Alex Trebek's legacy trashed in real time by the sleaziest host replacement process since Jay Leno conspired with NBC to screw over Conan O'Brien. Instead, the industry veterans I talked to last week were objectively sad about the whole mess and even angry. So the deal is that after running to various guest hosts, Mayim Bialik, who ended up getting the gig as a special co-host, although she has some very weird views about evolution that might actually eventually take her out of the running too, she was there. Katie Couric, longtime journalist, took a turn too. Even Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers found himself in the mix, a situation that not only provided a funny laugh, but also legitimately played a part in actual NFL offseason drama. Category for final today is daytime TV personalities. And the clue. Accepting a Lifetime Achievement Emmy, he said, just take 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are. You have 30 seconds. Good luck. 
We come to Joe Beth on the end first. You were in third place with 8,400. What did you write down? Over to our two-day champion on the end, Scott. Did you come up with the correct response? Who wanted to kick that field goal? That is a great question. It should be, should be, should be correct, but uh, unfortunately for this, uh, this game today, that's incorrect, and you're going to lose. But there were two names that were of interest to us for different reasons. One is Laura Coates. She's a CNN senior legal analyst and hosts the Daily Weekday Show on Sirius XM's POTUS channel. Trebek had mentioned her name, among others, in an interview, and she didn't even get a spot to guest host. As a black woman, nobody was exactly surprised, but we were dismayed. The second name is the big one, LeVar Burton, Kunta Kente and Roots, Lieutenant Jordy LaForge in Star Trek The Next Generation, and of course, as the lovable host of Reading Rainbow. Take a look, it's in a book. Not only was he well-known by an older generation of Americans, it felt like he was effectively made for the gig. Of course, the man who taught my generation how to read on TV should be hosting the most popular intellectual game show in America. This is a no-brainer, but it didn't happen like that, yo. As it turned out, Mike Richards, the former executive producer of The Price is Right and Let's Make a Deal, who moved to Jeopardy in 2020 to work during the transition from Trebek, pulled one of the most outrageously egregious moves in television history, and it blew up in his face. See, he'd hosted other game shows. Hell, he was born in Burbank, California, where television shows are shot all the time. So instead of a good faith effort to find the most popular host as the producer, he ended up doing something that only a certain type of person can do. He named himself unreal mind you if it weren't for my friend claire mcneil literally america's foremost jeopardy expert who wrote the book answers in the form of questions a definitive history and insider's guide to jeopardy richards might still be the host she published a story with the ringer about richards's gross past as a lewd podcast show host it was awkward and revealing now as it turns out it wasn't quite as easy as richards naming himself but the point is two days later mike would step down and on the bird, just like he does every weekend, Burton tweeted, Happy Friday, y'all. Of course, I promptly changed my Twitter display name to Reading Rainbro in solidarity, and some of the replies were fantastic. Listen, no one wants to gloat about a guy losing his job, but when you openly dismiss and disrespect the more qualified, more liked, and more well-known black candidates to insert yet another mediocre white dude into a space everybody loves, these jokes are gonna fly. Almost all of them involve faux talks at the table between Burton and the Jeopardy executives. From my man, Ben Krimmel, he says, Jeopardy experts looking at LeVar. LeVar, let's make it a true daily double, fellas. My man, Donald Wine II, at DW, he wrote, Jeopardy, hey, LeVar, we made a mistake and realized this morning that we really do want you to be a part of the show. Our original contract offer is still on the table. LeVar says, Channeling Jadakiss from the Versus versus the Dipset is good, but it's not enough. And of course, most people chimed in with the incredible words of one Fat Joe, which is what we'll leave you with today. And a reminder that if you do well, you should know your worth. Joe Crack, take it away. Yesterday's price is not today's price. Yesterday's price is not today's price. We'll see y'all next week, kiddos. I'm Clinton Yates. Thanks for listening to Black History Always. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. Mm-hmm.